Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. An ash cloud from a volcanic eruption in Russia is impacting airliner operations across Alaska. Yesterday, an ash cloud passed over the south-central and southeastern parts of the state, grounding many commercial flights. But some services are still able to get through. Here's the report from Petersburg's airport. Okay, what's your... Sarah. Yeah, okay. And last name? Hofstetter. Is that that? That is H-O-F-S-T-E-T-E. You do got that. Petersburg musician Sarah Hansen Hofstetter was on her way to Juneau to perform at the Alaska Folk Festival. She was all packed and ready to go with her guitar strapped to her back. And then her morning flight out of Petersburg was canceled as a safety precaution. Although the Alaska Airlines jet was grounded, she was able to rebook on a smaller plane run by Alaska seaplanes. She got the second to last seat. I feel good, but I'm still just waiting until I'm in Juneau to really celebrate. But I'm super, super excited that at least I have my next step forward happening. One of Russia's most active volcanoes erupted Monday morning, spewing ash well over 50,000 feet into the sky. Nathan Eckstein is the science and operations officer for the Anchorage Volcanic Ash Advisory Center, which advises aviation services across the region. He says the eruption was quite powerful. Quite significant. Get a lot of significant eruptions into the 30,000 foot range, and so this one was even and bigger than that. Over the next few days, the ash drifted over the Bering Sea, affecting North Pacific flight tracks that connect North America to Asia. Then the largest chunk of the cloud passed over the North Pacific, the western Gulf of Alaska, Kodiak Island, and then along the Alaska Peninsula. And then, you know, overnight, our office noticed some ash that disconnected from that popped up over uh, southeast Alaska. So uh, we needed to warn aviation on that. It's a pretty pronounced signal. We can see it very well on Saturday. As of 10.30 a.m. Thursday, Alaska Airlines had canceled 28 flights across Alaska and delayed several more. In a statement, the company said they would continue to monitor the situation and might need to cancel more flights. Commercial jets are particularly affected by ash when flying at higher altitudes, where particles in the cloud, essentially tiny rocks, could damage their engines. Jet turbines run hot and don't have an air filter, so if they fly through ash, it can melt and clog up the engine. But smaller planes with props have more flexibility. Piston engines have an air filter and operate at lower temperatures, so it's not as big a deal if some ash gets into the engine. That's why Sarah Hansen Hofstetter was able to continue on to Juneau when her original flight fell through. Andy Klein is a representative for Alaska Seaplanes. He says they're still able to get some flights out, despite the ash cloud. If it's just a matter of how we're able to fly at a lower elevation and in clear air, But even Alaska seaplanes experienced some service disruptions. As of noon Thursday, they had a total of six cancellations across southeast Alaska. The ash cloud that disrupted the flights continued moving into western Canada, and the smaller airline began resuming regular operations. But it's not over for Alaska. The volcano is still erupting, and there's more ash on the way. The Anchorage Volcanic Ash Advisory Center is observing a larger cloud, which is making its way towards the coastal waters of southeast east towards Yakutat and possibly on to Sitka. If you have travel plans today or this weekend, check with your airline.
Southeast Alaska's pink salmon run is predicted to be weak this summer. The region's commercial harvest is expected to increase by just 5% this year compared to last year, according to a report from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game released earlier this month. But it's forecast to be more than a 60% drop from the last odd year harvest in 2021. Pink salmon runs in southeast peak in odd years and fall in even years. The 2023 pink salmon harvest is predicted to be around 19 million fish, with a probable range of between 12 and 19 million. That's what the department classifies as a weak run. It's nowhere near Southeast's record harvest of 2013, which saw more than 89 million pink salmon. The estimate comes mostly from an analysis of pink juvenile salmon abundance indicators collected by researchers in Southeast in previous years. If 19 million pinks are pulled out of the water by Southeast fishermen this summer, it'll be just over half of the recent 10-year average harvest of 22 million pinks, but it's only about 40% of the average harvest over the past 10-odd years. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game only publishes harvest forecasts for pinks in southeast Alaska because they say they don't have enough data from other salmon species to accurately predict harvests. But they do set harvest limits, and Chinook salmon trollers will face a 23% reduction in allowable harvest this year. That's a decrease of 44,000 fish. It leaves around 50,000 king salmon allowed to be harvested by all other gear types under the international treaty that governs wild king harvest. Hatchery-produced kings aren't part of that agreement. Even so, runs of embattled southeast king salmon are supposed to meet the lower end of their escapement goals on many of the rivers monitored monitored by fishing game this year. The Stickine River near Wrangell is an exception. It's not forecast to meet its escapement goal range of 14 to 28,000 kings. ADF and G's harvest prediction for southeast also indicated last year's salmon harvest in the region was around half of the previous years. It was the 33rd highest harvest since 1962. The preliminary ex-vessel value of last year's southeast salmon fishery is the 24th lowest on record, but that doesn't mean last year's prices are low. Even though the 22 harvest was half of the previous years, the total preliminary value at the docks for southeast increased by 12 million to 144 million. That rise in value came primarily because the price per pound of chum salmon increased by half compared to the previous year at a region-wide average of $1.18 per pound. Juno's cruise season will kick off next Monday when the Norwegian Bliss arrives in port. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted tourism in Juno for several years. But as Anna Canny reports from Juno, this season is slated to see cruise ship passengers return with a vengeance. City tourism manager Alexander Pierce says Juno will see visitors return at full force this year. They're expecting roughly 1.67 million people to arrive between April and October. We're looking at 30% more visitor volume, which is 
a massive jump. We've never seen an increase like this before. So I don't think any of us who are close to the industry really know whether it's going to just be completely crazy and really overloaded or whether it'll be okay. Cruise industry as a whole has moved towards larger ships and more packed schedules. That shift will bring more and more tourists to Southeast Alaska. Elizabeth Arnett works for the nonprofit Travel Juno. She says a robust return of the cruise industry will be a relief for business owners. But bigger crowds could also mean new disturbances for residents. It's so exciting to have a thriving tourism community again. But that's not necessarily the case with people who aren't involved in it and who are directly impacted. The challenge for both city officials and tourism advocates will be finding a sustainable volume of tourists. But there's no certainty on where that number falls. And limiting the number of cruise visitors is hard for a community that relies heavily on the industry's economic benefits. Where's the stopping point and how do you even make a stopping point in the, the kind of economy that we live under, you know? If we start trying to put our foot down with the cruise industry, when do we step too hard and they just back away? To get ahead on the ever-growing cruise industry, the city assembly did pass a five-ship daily limit earlier this winter. But that won't take effect until 2024. In the meantime, tour managers and downtown businesses will have to figure out new ways to manage crowds and entertain visitors. We'll be tested this summer for sure, and we all pray that it it comes out on the plus side because if visitors stop having a good experience here, the ships will take notice. And Pierce says that many of the most popular tourist attractions are already reaching capacity. Mendenhall Glacier, for instance, has struggled with overcrowding for years. Plans to upgrade visitor facilities at the glacier have been under development since 2019, but it will be several seasons before construction can actually begin. And some of the region's existing excursions don't have much more room for growth. We're feeling like we're kind of busting at the seams on whale watching right now. It feels that way on helicopters. So the biggest thing we can do is shore excursion capacity. The city hopes to use 2023 as a test run for larger visitor numbers to understand where crowds have become too much to handle and where opportunities for new tourist attractions exist. Pierce says the city hopes to conduct a borough-wide study on the subject. To look at look at the community and where we're already seeing pain points, and also to kind of give our local businesses, our local tour operators, a sense of you know where and how they can grow in a way that is vetted through a public process. The money for that study would come from marine passenger fees, which are collected from cruise visitors. But funding is dependent on the approval of the city's 2024 budget, which is currently under review. And you know, I'm Anna Canny. Sitka's municipal ele- elections may soon be getting a refresh. When the Sitka Assembly met last night, it approved on the first reading code changes that would establish early voting as a new option for local voters. Catherine Rose reports from Sitka. In 2020, Sitka set a record for early voter turnout in the municipal election. Just over 1,300 people showed up to cast their ballots in the last weeks of September rather than on Election Day. But if you want to get technical, it wasn't actually early voting. It was absentee in person. Up until now, the only way to vote early in Sitka's municipal election each October is by voting absentee. But there's a big difference. Absentee votes aren't counted on election night. They're counted on the Friday following the municipal election, regardless of whether the vote was cast in person or through the mail. 
Even with the downside of waiting several days for your vote to count, Municipal Clerk Sarah Peterson says the absentee in-person option in Sitka has maintained popularity since she decided in the fall of 2020 to move the early polls from City Hall to Harrigan Centennial Hall as a COVID mitigation measure. The first year in 2020, we had about 1,300 people that voted in person prior to Election Day. Um, and then 2021, 2022, it's been about 700 to 800 people. Obviously, there was COVID concerns, um, social distancing and whatnot. But I think um, the ease of, you know, accessibility into Harrigan Hall, I think that plays a big factor um, into it, too. In 2022, 696 Sitkins voted early in person. That's more than double the absentee in-person votes from 2019. Under the new code, Sitkins will still have all of the absentee options by mail, fax, in person or using a representative. But they'll have a new option, too. And if they choose to vote early in person, they will see their votes counted on election night. The new code would also change the requirements for municipal election candidates. Current city codes suggest candidates must submit advocacy statements and biographical information to the city clerk's office in order for their names to be listed on the ballot. But it's not actually required. A language tweak would clarify that those documents are optional for candidates. But Assemblymember Crystal Duncan called for another language adjustment. The code sets a deadline for submitting those documents as 46 days before the election if candidates want the information displayed on the city's website. Duncan believed candidates who submit after the deadline shouldn't be penalized. We need to question, are the same candidates running? Are we reaching different pools who probably don't have experience running an election? For us, it was easy. For me, I had help. And so people were um, pushing me to get that submitted. I don't want to penalize someone and almost in a way exclude them because I know how hard it is to run for these seats. And until we see a body that's reflective of the community, I think I'm going to stress that we need to take those considerations into account. She asked Peterson if late submissions had been a recurring problem for her office, and Peterson said they hadn't been. So Duncan asked if they could remove the deadline altogether. But several assembly members said they preferred to keep the deadline in, including Tor Christensen. I know that Sarah would not. We'll make sure that they know their deadline is coming up. I can attest to that. So I don't have a problem with the deadline. I mean, you need to have a, a certain amount of, I guess, basic rules. And if they can't make that deadline, then again, they're not serious. Duncan made a motion to amend the code by striking the deadline language, but it failed for a lack of a second. No other concerns were brought to the table about the code change. Mayor Stephen Eisenbeis thanked Peterson for bringing early voting forward. I think making voting more accessible to more people is definitely a win. I understand how it can be difficult for some to make it down on a particular day. Um, so your your work in modernizing our voting system to, to the standards that are uh, in place elsewhere uh, is much appreciated. Thank you for that. The ordinance passed on a five to one vote with Assemblymember Duncan opposed. It will come before the Assembly for a final reading at the April 25th meeting. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. KFSK is celebrating National Poetry Month by sharing poetry readings each weekday. Today's poetry reading features Lizzie Thompson. This is a poem by Rosemary Watola Traumer, entitled, When the Man I Don't Know Yet Writes to Say He is Holding Me in the Light. I feel it. I feel it in my fingers, something of starlight. 
I feel in my breath something like dawn. I feel in my inner caverns something akin to the radiance of glowworms, as if just knowing that someone is holding me in light has made the moment brighter. It occurs to me, I can do this too, and I begin to imagine others, gathered by sunset, carried by candlelight, infused with the soft warmth of a low campfire. I picture the light as it spreads across the world, as it seeks out hearts and lives I will never know. What must it look like from space as it spreads, as it grows, as it blooms through this darkness where we all live together? These poetry readings are a production of KFSK presented throughout the month of April. The readings are aired at approximately 8.08 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. You can listen to many poetry readings on our website, kfsk.org. You're listening to Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert, and I report for KFSK.